This program may contain explicit language. Also, we have a newsletter coming out. It's at slate.com slash gist news. Now on with the possibly filthy show. It's Friday, August 2nd, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So maybe you heard Cory Booker did well in his debate, though polls don't show it. Cory Booker, fun fact, has a brother named Carrie Booker. Also has a dad named Carrie Booker. Has a mom named Carolyn Booker. According to the polls, momentum from the debate could not carry Booker much higher than 3%. And that's where he's been polling. But he's not in it for the bump. Oh, no. He's in it for the approbation. And the approbation came in the form of one very specific appellation. Look, I think that if, you, if you're talking about what happened last night, Cory Booker, the happy warrior returns. There's a certain kind of like happy warrior-ness that, that I saw a few people exhibited, particularly Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker. Yeah, Cory Booker really had a solid night. He threw some punches, but really avoided getting hit uh, too much. And he still was able to hold on to that happy warrior, which is all part of his argument. Yeah, I think last night was Cory Booker's night. He was the kind of the happy warrior that, Andrew, you and I have been expecting to see from him. In a debate, uh, Booker... I think, plays to his strength, which is he's happiest when he gets to be the happy warrior. So the happy warrior, the original happy warrior was Al Smith, the yep. governor of New York. And, and he had this wonderful kind of street quality. And then FDR became the Took happy him apart. warrior. <laughs> Took him apart. So. But he was also a happy warrior. That was Joe Pinion on Fox and Friends. Chris Hayes. Arlette Sands on CNN, Jim Messina on MSNBC, Luke Thompson of the National Review, Jonathan Alter, and possibly Al Smith in there, because that's who Happy Warrior is about. FDR first used the phrase Happy Warrior to describe Al Smith at the Democratic National Convention in 1924. So how does the phrase last in the political realm for 94 years? No one using it today actually voted for Al Smith. And is it so descriptive? If anything, it sounds a little discordant to 2019 ears. I mean, applying warrior in a non-war context, a little bit of a thing we've moved away from. It's not a horrible phrase. But a similar phrase in a sphere other than politics, I think, would have fallen away by now. It's a little past its sell-by date. Couple similar phrases. Stumping for a candidate or throwing one's hat in the ring. Why do we say these things? Well, because we've always said these things. But that is true for other idioms in other walks of life. Here's some proof. So the 1924 Democratic Convention, which I mentioned, which birthed the phrase happy warrior, took place over many days in the summer of 24. I randomly picked a New York Times headline about the Yankees. So baseball's going on. Baseball still use phrases. But listen to the phrases used in this story about the Yankees from June of 1924. Ruth's Homer fails to check senators. Babe gets 18th circuit clout. The senators and the weatherman, mainly the senators, prodded the Yanks a flight lower in the pennant race today. In four innings of light and three of darkness, followed by downpour, a cloudburst, and whatnot, the Washingtons won three to two. Homer is still short for home run, but circuit clout that they check 
the senators. And if you were thinking, oh, we still use weatherman, they weren't using it to mean meteorologist. They were using it to mean a man who controls the weather. Indeed, they were from context. If you read the whole piece, you get that. So much of language and phrases and idioms evolve, but with politics, with its donkeys and elephants that Thomas Nass created and references to stump speeches, there's not been as much evolution. And I have a theory as to why. There are elections all the time, but we really pay attention in presidential years. And while it's true, since 1924, there have been 95 Yankee seasons full of clouts and weathermen, in politics, it's only been 24 elections. There isn't enough time for a phrase to be absorbed and digested, to work its way through the system. They say the cells in the human body turn over every seven years. We're just not allowing the body politic enough time to rejuvenate. Prognosticators will tell you that past performance isn't as helpful in politics as it is in, say, baseball because of sample size. And I think that also affects the language. Happy warriors are still around while the Tammany wets have gone the way of the mugwump, the free soiler, and the Rockefeller Republican. On the show today... I spiel about the favor that Donald Trump has been doing all of us by picking grossly unqualified appointees. It's nice to have an opportunity to get a sense of the rotten tent poles that are holding up the circus. But first, last week I looked back at Slate's initial coverage of the 2017 sexual harassment allegations against Al Franken. I found it lacking. Here is a quote from the article posted a few hours after the first allegations arose. There is no rational reason to doubt the truth of Tweedin's accusations, no legitimate defense of Franken's actions, and no ambiguity here at all. Franken should resign from the Senate immediately. Well, there is. There is reason for doubt and defenses and especially ambiguity. Jane Mayer of The New Yorker provided all of that. Leanne Tweedin's claims don't hold up to scrutiny as provided by Jane Mayer. Slate, for its part, has not corrected or commented on the original article. Well, I'll say this. I'm Slate, and they've certainly let me criticize it, so there's that. But what our publication has done is to criticize Jane Mayer's piece, which I thought was pretty sound. Slate's Christina Catarucci did not, and therein lays the conflict, which is, of course, a building block of drama or at least a 20-minute interview slash argument. Christina and I have at it after this. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. The curious case of Al Franken, as explicated by Jane Mayer, set off, of course, a lot of discussion and consternation. And in our pages, there was an article called What Jane Mayer Gets Wrong About Al Franken, subhead, and what she fails to understand about the Me Too movement. 
was written by the estimable Christina Caterucci, who returns to this program in once more a somewhat adversarial position. Hello, Christina. Hi, Mike. Yeah, th- there's no other way I'd, I'd be on this show. So thank you for having me. Again. I, well, I'm against the people agreeing with each other format. We, uh, <laughs> we, we have dipped our toe in that, and it's just not as good as what we got going on here. Now, your article... And the headline and subhead pretty much thrust two questions into uh, into the into the queue, and I'm going to ask you those questions. But before I get there, let's just say I want to say this: I agree with you on two basic points. One is, just as a political matter, the Democrats were calculating, but ultimately probably did the smart thing in getting rid of Al Franken. That's one. And point number two is that, other than his interactions with Leanne Tweeden, putting that aside, nothing in the Jane Mayer articles uh, excuses what he's done or is alleged to have done with the other women. So that's two things I agree with and I think you agree with too. Yes, we're in agreement. What a great place to start off. <laughs> not, not as exciting as this. So what does Jane Mayer get wrong about Al Franken? First of all, I think she grossly mischaracterizes the problem people had with Al Franken. She spends the majority of her piece talking about how, you know, Leanne Tweeden was politically motivated, which we knew, you know, everybody knew that she was a conservative, that she worked at a conservative radio show, that she had deep ties in the right wing. She talks a lot about how all of his friends think he's such a nice guy. He never harassed anyone in front of them. The way that she framed the piece, both within the article and in her tweets, where she says, you know, he got railroaded, everything, almost everything that was reported about the accusations against him were wrong, just fail to live up to themselves. The, the piece fails to live up to the claims that she makes. You can read a piece like this and say, okay, she raises a lot of questions about the accusations that were made, but none of them actually get at the heart of why people who wanted Al Franken to resign wanted him to resign. It wasn't about the claim that Leanne Tweeden made that he had thrust his tongue in her mouth or that he had written this skit just so he could kiss her. Or rather, it wasn't just those things. It was the accretion of eight accusations against him that he had made people uncomfortable. And it was the picture that we saw with our own two eyes of him gleefully pretending to or possibly actually groping her breasts while she was asleep. I think, so your main point, because you threw a couple of other flaw finding that you found with Jane Mayer's article in there, your main thesis about what she gets wrong is she gets wrong why people wanted Al Franken out of the Senate. And the subthesis is it wasn't just Leanne Tweeden, it was eight women. It wasn't one woman, it was eight women. Now, I would say that I don't think she ever asserts that. What she does is spends a lot of time on the main accuser. And by main accuser, I'm going to say the one that got the vast majority of the attention for a lot of reasons. She spends a lot of time and she, as she said in her tweet, writes almost nothing his main accuser said checks out. I rate that statement true. Almost nothing she said checks out. What about the the things that, you know, Mayer raises questions about but doesn't actually disprove, like the fact that Leanne Tweeden says, we were rehearsing and he thrust his tongue into my mouth. You know, Mayer doesn't disprove that. She just raises questions about it. Well, it doesn't check out. I mean, it, she's not saying that. First of all, she said almost nothing, his main accuser said, checks out. And I'm sure she would say that the one thing we can't know is this one interaction that Tweeden said no one else saw 
So what Mayer did, I really think as best as journalistically possible, is document how, while that may have occurred and it's unprovable if they were the only two people in the room, she spends a lot of time showing how it is implausible, I would say, or unlikely that they would ever have been the only two people in the room. I mean, she put a lot of, I guess we could disagree that anything's possible, but she put a lot of journalistic effort into showing in interviews with eight people, including, and this is pretty unique, in he said, she said, maybe you object to that phrase, I find it troublesome too, but in he said, she said interactions, it's pretty unique that you would have Both the people have official minders from the U.S. military. So I just think she did her journalistic job on everything that was possibly checkable. She checked it all. And like she said, almost nothing checked out. I I would disagree with your contention that she checked almost everything that was checkable. With the tweet, with uh, his interaction with his main accuser. Right. And, and, And I would, you know, lump into that category all the other reporting that she did or context she provided on the USO, which I actually found really valuable. I think this piece functions really well as a contextualizing of the USO situation. You know, if I were to make a list of facts that... Leanne Tweeden laid out about her interactions with Al Franken and then a list of the facts that Mayer was able to prove wrong. I don't think that the majority or plurality were disproved by Jane Mayer, but I do agree with you that, you know, she reported them far far more deeply than anyone else did at the time. Well, as far as um, maybe I'm missing some big things, but Tweeden said he wrote a skit where purposefully for me, where the purpose was to kiss me. He did kiss me against my will. He continued to lord this over me and have had an adversarial relationship with me. And at the very end of the tour, uh, he used in the last day of the tour, a picture of him harassing me as a final fuck you to show you I still control you. And that picture was sent only to me. In fact, The tour was, the skit was written and performed by many other people. The picture was sent to many people. The picture wasn't taken on the last day of the tour. No one saw any interactions before, uh, between them that would indicate that there was animosity. I don't, I don't know. What are the other main, main accusations that I'm missing? The people who were talking about, oh, you know, he drew devil horns on her or something like that. I don't think people were saying that didn't happen. They're saying she's interpreting them wrong or maybe purposely mischaracterizing them to gain political points. Is there any other, other than this kind of setting, is there any other walk of life where a conservative commentator who is friends with Sean Hannity, who is sitting on information for years, who timed the information to have maximum impact on a Democratic senator who orchestrated with Roger Stone would get the benefit of your doubt? I'm like honestly not trying to litigate whether or not Leanne Tweeden is lying for political purposes. I feel like that was what Jane Mayer was kind of trying to suggest in her yes, piece. Yes, I, I think that's a fair um, assessment. And I was convinced she was. And, you know, I'm not unconvinced that she was. Right. But Jane Mayer's description of Al Franken's time with the USO and the people she got to say, you know, he never behaved inappropriately with anyone else. I saw him around cheerleaders, you know. Like, it took me two seconds to Google Al Franken, USO, and one of those people's names to find an essay he himself wrote where he said that one of the jokes he made on his tour was, oh, these cheerleaders on this tour, I can't wait to go home and have sex with my wife while thinking about them. 
And he himself said, I behaved really respectfully toward these three young women, young quote unquote urban women who are on the tour with me, this hip hop group. I did not behave that same way with the cheerleaders. Mayer doesn't include that in her piece. So where she says, I'm fact checking, I'm reporting far deeper than any other person was willing to go on this USO issue. It, she didn't even include what he himself has said about the way he acted on this tour. So you think that he made a joke uh, and the joke was, I want to have sex with these cheerleaders. I don't think I know because he he wrote that in Mother I'll Jones. Read the exact, I'll read the exact thing from Mother Jones. Thank you. All right. This is Franken talking about NFL cheerleaders who are on the tour. No USO tour is complete without NFL cheerleaders. And the Redskins sent to Kelly and Katie Cornwell, whom the troops seemed happier to see than me. As I told the soldiers, quote, I don't know how you guys do it for nine months. I've been over here a week. And the first thing I'm going to do when I get home is have sex with my wife while thinking about the cheerleaders. Not so different from you guys, except I won't be alone. That to me is not a joke about having sex with the cheerleaders. And also, it is a joke. He is a prof- You might not think it's a good joke, but he is a professional comedian. He did tell that joke, and that joke yeah. killed, and the troops liked it. I don't, think you're, I don't think you're describing his joke accurately. I think the joke is about him saying that he wanted to think about the cheerleaders while having sex with his wife. Yes, yes, in a way that you guys are going to also, the difference is I'll be with a woman and you guys will be alone. I think that Jane Mayer certainly read that article and said to herself, immaterial to understanding the overall gestalt of what was happening, comedian making a joke that went over well, object of the joke or butt of the joke, not the cheerleaders, but you guys for having to go and take care of yourselves with these cheerleaders in your mind. A sexy prop to be used. That's what cheerleaders are, to be used in NFL stadiums, to be used societally. Sad, sad as that it may be. So then why did Jane Mayer include the person saying he treated the cheerleaders with respect? Because he, he did. Because clearly didn't. No, he did treat them with respect. How is, how is making a actions, sex joke about them respecting them? That's not respecting them. I don't care if that's, I don't agree with you, but I don't care if that's what quote unquote cheerleaders are for. I don't care if it's in the tradition of Bob Hope. I don't care if the troops liked it. Uh Just because somebody laughs at a joke in an institution that is known for its its sky high rates of sexual assault, laughs at the joke doesn't make it an appropriate joke or a joke that is not sexual harassment. I don't think like just because sexual harassment is included in a joke or, or because um, cheerleaders are asked to expect sexual harassment and accept it means that it's okay or not sexual harassment at all. So you're saying one cannot argue, and Jane Mayer was wrong to put a quote in her article describing Al Franken as treating the cheerleaders respectfully. It is ipso facto impossible for him to treat them respectfully if he made that joke we just quoted. Yes, I think that that joke is disrespectful. Now I want to get to something that we don't disagree on, but I want your opinion of, which is, it is true that Jane Mayer, on many occasions, quotes many people generally saying, Al wouldn't do that, Al is appropriate with women, or Al is uh, Sarah Silverman, calling him almost asexual. All these people who didn't see or had no firsthand knowledge of Al Franken sexually harassing anyone saying Al Franken wouldn't sexually harass someone. Now, here's my question. In articles on Harvey Weinstein or Charlie Rose or Eric Schneiderman, articles that Jane Mayer has written, 
There is often the part where the good reporter does the survey of the people who know them. And oftentimes there is the, yeah, this was an open secret, or doesn't surprise me given what I've seen, or throughout his career, there were hints and intimations. My question is, if you do the work and you interview the people around him and you find uh, a general tone of, this is very shocking and out of character, do you not put them in? Do you not put those quotes in? If you do put the quotes, if they are damning. No, I guess I don't think it was necessarily a problem that she found people who said this is out of character, but I don't think that's what those people said. The people were specifically trying to to say that the accusations that were made, they thought were lies. They thought the people were lying, like the person who said that he thought Leanne Tweeden was maybe just upset because Al Franken was ugly. Like, oh, he's not some, you know, Cary Grant character, but would he stick his tongue in someone's mouth? No. That's directly refuting somebody else's account that the source who made that refutation could not know anything about. So, yeah, I don't think she should have put that quote in. Because well, how is that person supposed to know what happened? Well, because, I, to be clear, there was only one accuser who accused him of sticking his tongue down her throat, and that was Leanne Tweeden. So, this guy is saying, he was like your Uncle Morty, he wasn't Cary Grant, but tongue down the throat, no, I've done hundred, uh, hundreds of events with this guy, I've been on the open road and on his book tours with him, and that he's 500% devoted to his wife. There's like a little bit of a stupidity to that quote, but overall, I do think that there is a journalistic value to the accretion of people who know him and people who know him well and people who know him less well saying entirely out of character, and you wouldn't get that with a lot of the other people who've been involved in Me Too situations. I guess the other thing I would say to that is part of what I was trying to say when I made the differentiation between him and Weinstein and all the other people who, yeah, I agree, those interviews were incredibly helpful in talking about how many people knew about the behavior. I don't think the situation with Al Franken is that he's got, like, a a secret life or a dark side or this evil side. (laughs) I think it's, like, pretty clear when you look at his behavior, his humor. Like, again, this is probably all should have been litigated when he was running for office. Isn't that her very point, that it should have been litigated? The whole article and what she told Terry Gross, her motivation for doing this, was not to be his defense lawyer, but was to go back and figure out what really happened, to essentially give him the hearing that he asked for and never got. But I think she did claim to have done that in her tweets about it. Tell me which ones. The one where she said he was railroaded. What What do you think railroaded means? Oh, oh yeah, I know what railroaded means. I think that means unfairly removed from office. No, it's a it's that's not what railroaded means. Railroaded is a comment on the haste of the procedure, not the ultimate judgment. Railroaded means justice, quote unquote, or injustice happened without due deliberation and consideration. That's exactly So she her thinks point. that her piece gave him the fair hearing that he didn't get in Congress. That was her motivation and she thinks that I she thinks she pretty much destroyed Leanne Tweeden's uh, accusations. I think she goes pretty far. Okay, you know, that's a fine disagreement. And you think it's insane because, well, of the reasons you said and because the picture is there. Yeah, But I also think that it was ultimately his decision to step down. That's the other thing we agree on, that it was Al Franken's. I want to read this, or if you don't have the piece there, don't you say it was ultimately Al Franken's hands that did it, not someone else, was that? Yeah, you know, he... He's the one who resigned. I think the way Jane Mayer framed the piece where she calls Al Franken one of the losers of the Me Too movement or on the losing side of the Me Too movement Mm -hmm. is really offensive to everything that this, you know, 
uh, incredible, unprecedented grassroots movement is trying to do and has succeeded in doing. I'm grateful that the Me Too movement has given people an opportunity to question why male politicians have treated women like this. The fact that these men never really felt like it was their job to change their behavior or reconsider it or think about like, yeah, that humor was effed up until this moment when they've been called to task for it, I think demonstrates the success of the Me Too movement and they shouldn't be characterized as the losers because as a society who is, you know, and these men purport to be invested in the liberation of women and the dignity of women should also be happy about that. I'll read the losing side quote. Yet, he, Franken, added, being on the losing side of the Me Too movement, which he fervently supports, has led him to spend time thinking about such matters as due process, proportionality of punishment, and the consequences of internet-fueled outrage. Of course he was on the losing side. He lost his job. He lost his reputation. He went into a funk. He was depressed. He took medications. I suppose you you could view it and get offended by the use of that phrase, but in the way it's being used in this article and to his life, I think a fair reading can say that Al Franken, who supports the Me Too movement, was hurt by the accountability that it also brings. Um, To say that he's on the losing side, I think, makes an assumption that like somebody's winning. I don't know that anybody can win in this situation since what we're talking about is people who felt demeaned by his actions. And in general, in the Me Too movement, just plenty of people who have been you know, who are survivors of sexual assault and abuse. Like, no one's winning there. When when a bad man loses his job, when a Harvey Weinstein doesn't get to make another movie, like, I don't know that anyone wins in that situation. I also think it's different to say that somebody has suffered professional consequences and personal emotional consequences as a result of that and saying that they somehow lost. Because, you know, what you're saying is it, it, it reduces it to something like a game. I guess he's on the, they were on the losing side of a war. He was on the losing side of a custody battle. Is there really, really winners in those fraught things? Uh, colloquially, perhaps uh, a line editor could have flagged that and made her change it. But I, I, t- I get your point. But, but I, don't I don't think it's think just it's that line. So I think terrible. it's the general way that this piece and plenty of other pieces about the Me Too movement have talked about the women who are bringing these accusations or supporting the Me Too movement are capricious, vindictive, only want to bring men down when it's not necessarily about... There's, but in this piece, it was only about Leanne Tweeden, and she obviously did want to bring Al Franken down, and I think there's a lot of evidence. She told him that she didn't want him to resign after she brought the accusation forward. She obviously worked with Sean Hannity to mac- and, and Roger Stone to maximize the political impact and fallout of the accusations. Okay, does that mean that the accusation shouldn't have been brought forward? Well, yeah, because I think I think that Jane Mayer proves that it was basically false. I, I suppose you could say that she really felt that it happened, and then she got bad advice from conservative actors who told her to maximize it with these explanations. But since, you know, I'm doing a lot of work for Leanne Tweeden here, who seems to have been, at best, extremely misleading and unfactual about her accusations. I honestly don't care about her at all and, yeah, and whether yeah. she's lying about these things or is, is trying to was trying to use the accusation for political purposes. Like, that actually doesn't matter to me. What I'm trying to ascertain when I listen to her story, the seven others, and look at that photo, read what Al Franken wrote— and watch the skit is whether I want someone like Al Franken in office and whether I believe him when he says this was all 
innocent humor. I, I, you know, always treat women with respect. So my last question is this. Finally, you said that having considered all the reporting, you still think Al Franken shouldn't be uh, someone who's representing you or people in the Senate, shouldn't be a public official. I think you said this despite the Jane Mayer piece. Do you think a reasonable person reading the Jane Mayer piece can take it all in on faith and, and come to the same conclusion because of the Jane Mayer piece? The amount of time that she spent talking about the political leanings of Leanne Tweeden and her radio station and, you know, picking that story apart, I think raises the possibility that this was all a political stunt you know, we disagree on this, but I think the way she spent so little time talking about the other seven accusations and in a couple of the cases kind of trying to undermine them makes it seem like those can be very easily ignored. I, I don't know. I think that people can probably read her piece and be convinced that, yeah, these accusations were a big nothing, that this was a case of Me Too, like, swinging its blade with too much haste and like this well-meaning innocent man got felled in the process it's hasty blade it's it's <laughs> ill-considered poorly constructed scythe as it reaped the wheat of al franken <laughs> what do you think i'm glad you asked i think a reasonable person could read the piece and say yeah i still think al franken should have gone and that's because i am that reasonable person yeah i mean i'm obviously also a, an extremely reasonable person who thinks al franken still should have resigned <laughs> but i think reasonable people could read the article and come out on either side of it i would love to talk to somebody who was um really convinced by this article to change their mind not just you know the democrats who had already changed their mind right I mean, I, I would also hope that reasonable people who read this article also read the other accounts in Huffington Post and Jezebel that shine a little bit more light on the accusers that she, um, you know, doesn't spend as much time on as she does Leanne Tweeden. Christina, I enjoyed it. I always like having you on and you write well and interestingly. Thanks, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. Christina Catarucci's article, What Jane Mayer Gets Wrong About Al Franken. Thanks again, Christina. Thanks. I'm Dr. Megan Sachs. And I'm Dr. Amy Sloshberg. And we're the host of the podcast Campus Killings. Our show covers some of the most sinister crimes to take place on or around school campuses, or the cases we discuss have a school-connected theme. And with the new school year comes an all-new second season of Campus Killings, which will debut on September 16th, 2023. But if you want to listen to Campus Killings now, you can binge all the episodes from season one. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel. It is a nice service that Donald Trump is providing by suggesting horribly unqualified people for important offices. We get to scrutinize these horribly unqualified people and wonder how the hell they're in the highest reaches of government to begin with. I noticed this phenomenon a few years ago in my state, New York, with Governor David Patterson. Before he was governor, and Elliot Spitzer did his Spitzer thing, Patterson was lieutenant governor. He was blind. Perhaps you remember the SNL sketches, which didn't go much deeper than he was blind. But as a New Yorker, 
when he was lieutenant governor. All you ever heard was, oh, this guy's great. This guy puts in so much work to memorize speeches because he can't read them off the page. What an inspiration. And maybe he was an inspiration. But as soon as he became governor, we also learned he was kind of an incompetent inspiration or at least an overmatched inspiration. Or maybe lieutenant governor is just a really easy job. Guess what? It is. I remember the day after David Patterson was sworn in, and that was the day he decided to divulge all the affairs he'd been having. There was a headline on CNN, New York governor, colon, state employee among my several affairs. Imagine that wasn't a paraphrase. Imagine that was an exact quote that Patterson said. As I take this oath, I want to be honest with you. I haven't always been perfect. What I'm saying is state employee among my several affairs. Governor Patterson, Governor Patterson, who was the state employee? Governor Patterson, were you a direct supervisor? Was she on your payroll? No, no, no. I think you're missing the point of my statement. My several affairs, several affairs. So we learned about David Patterson the hard way. I guess Trump is giving us the easy method of learning about some of the people already in government. Some fellow wants the lowly, lowly, almost inconsequential job of second in charge of the Department of Defense? Eh, why look into his background? But once Trump names him to be Secretary of Defense, well, we get to learn that he once argued that his son acted in self-defense for bludgeoning his mom with a baseball bat. She had been criticizing him for hours. A so-called economist wants to be trotted out on all manner of TV show as a defender of Trump's policies. That could go on forever. But then Trump intervenes, helpfully nominates Stephen Moore, and we get to learn all about him, that he believes women are inherently inferior and that he doesn't understand the gold standard. Quite a service. But the real service is with a sitting member of Congress. I mean, right there in Pennsylvania's 10th was Tom Marino. He would have gone on in Congress, but he was nominated to be the drug czar. And it was only then that we learned that he was the chief architect behind a bill basically written by the pharmaceutical companies to shield them from penalty and to, uh, you know, allow the opioid epidemic. Marino went through withdrawal. And so did Mark E. Green, nominated to be secretary of the army. It was then revealed that he told the Tea Party, quote, if you polled the psychiatrists, they're going to tell you that transgender is a disease. Now, that was a little a bit of an unusual case because it was after he said that that he was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, but at least now we know his position. And finally, there is today's case of the Trump administration relying on the withdrawal method as a prophylactic. John Ratcliffe will not be director of national intelligence. He inflated his resume. He bragged about arrests he did not oversee. He claimed to be the chief of anti-terrorism and national security in the Eastern District of Texas, which is a title that does not nor has ever existed. He displayed incuriosity as a member of the House Intel Committee. He never accompanied the committee on any overseas trips to learn about intelligence operations. And he's out. He has withdrawn. But he has not withdrawn as a member of Congress. So thanks for the info about who our elected officials are. This is a valuable service the Trump administration provides, shining the spotlight and all. But when you lift up the rock, the critters are supposed to scurry away, aren't they? No, we just put down the rock, move on to the next rock, always the next rock. There is one victim in all of this, and I think you know who it is. It's Steve Carell, or specifically the guy who does his prosthetic noses, John Radcliffe, with a more rectangular nose, is a dead ringer for Steve Carell, 
specifically when he was playing Brick Tamlin on Anchorman. Perhaps it's a deep cut, but no deeper than whoever the president is going to excavate as our next director of national intelligence. I like to eat ice cream, and I really enjoy a nice pair of slacks. Years later, a doctor will tell me that I have an IQ of 48. Sounds qualified to me. And that's it for today's show. PRBNMA produces the gist by playing the old army game in the last several innings and dawdling along in a way that disgusted spectators. Daniel Schrader went into an epileptic trance before every pitch, but apparently nothing is barred in the American League these days. The gist. I'm realizing that democratic politics have gone from a chicken in every pot to decriminalize pot or you're a chicken. And speaking of birds, oopru depru dupru, and thanks for listening.